Welcome to the City Collective Podcast. We believe we are better together and exist to create space for everyone to discover life in Jesus. We hope that you encounter the heart of God and are challenged and inspired in your relationship with Christ. The reading this morning is out of Acts chapter 6. We're going to read from verses 8 through 15 and then jump to the end at 54 to 60 at the end of chapter 7. So it says this, Now Stephen, a man full of God's grace and power, performed great wonders and signs among the people. Opposition arose, however, from members of the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, Jews of Cyrene and Alexandria, as well as the provinces of Cilicia and Asia, who began to argue with Stephen. But they could not stand up against the wisdom the Spirit gave him as he spoke. Then they secretly persuaded some men to say, we have heard Stephen speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. So they stirred up the people and the elders and the teachers of the law. They seized Stephen and brought him before the Sanhedrin. They produced false witnesses who testified, this fellow never stopped speaking against this holy place and against the law, for we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs Moses handed down to us. All who were sitting in the Sanhedrin looked intently at Stephen and they saw that his face was like the face of an angel. Stephen would then deliver uh, a powerful and meaningful sermon to those around and a statement that began to infuriate those who were listening. At the end of chapter 7, it says, When members of the Sanhedrin heard this, the words that he had spoken, they were furious and gnashed their teeth at him. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. At this they covered their ears and yelling at the top of their voices, they all rushed at him, dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul. While they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he said this, he fell asleep. Perhaps you've heard the scripture before. The, the first martyr recorded of the, of the early church. Stephen the martyr. And it's a story infamous for the moment of martyrdom. But I think it actually speaks in great volume for what it means to actually to, to be power, to be full of the power of the spirit. To, to discover for yourself what it is to be full of the Spirit. At the beginning of this text, right before we jumped in, verses 1 through 7, it indicates that Stephen was new to the scene. Stephen had been given the opportunity to, to join with the disciples because of a felt need, and he had done so with such vigor and excitement that he'd already made a splash in the city of Jerusalem, and so it had caught in people's attention. This is what we're going to spend time in today. The second biggest bullfight in the world takes place in Madrid every year, and it kicks off the bullfighting season in Spain. In 2014, things didn't go quite as they expected. Traditionally, bullfighters have, uh, bullfights have three matadors and six bulls, with each matador taking on two different bulls. At this event, however, the three matadors ran into some significant problems. 
33-year-old matador David Mora was the first up, and he was gruesomely gored by a 1,172-pound black bull named Decelio. After Mora was taken out of the ring, another matador entered the fight, and unluckily for the bull at the time, uh, unluckily for that matador, he then had to battle a 1,183-pound bull named Fenton. Fenton made short work of Nazir, the next matador that came up, and he dragged him around the ring multiple times to the point where he was injured enough for them to call a halt to it and take him to the hospital. Then a third joined into the fight, and he had his right leg and pelvis gored by the horn of the bull. You can toss the image on the screen. Not of the goring. I'm not going to do that to you, okay? We're not, we're not into a bio class here. Uh, this was the scene of the event. Needless to say, uh, event organizers had to cancel the rest of it for the first time in 35 years. When things don't go as expected, when the victor that you were hoping for isn't in the final position, it's funny, they call it bullfighting, but there's a consistent narrative that the bull doesn't really win. And so the expectation that everyone had when they came into this event was that it was going to go as normal, and when it didn't, they canceled the rest of the event, and it just felt like the smart thing to do. When things don't go as we expect, and when we're not the victor that we hope to be, it often leads us to a place where we're just going to cancel things until next time. And for many in the religious authority of the Sanhedrin that were present at the moment of Jesus' crucifixion, I imagine they would have treated the movement of Jesus' followers in the same way. Don't you see? You've lost. Your leader has been crucified. I think you should just roll over and play dead. They would have expected that the followers of Jesus would have disbanded upon his crucifixion and their headache would have been over, but that wasn't the situation. When, what we've seen in the first few weeks of this series is how the followers of Jesus didn't cancel and run. In fact, they doubled down. They, the promised gift from God of the Holy Spirit empowered them to start to live in a way that was reflective of who Jesus was. And in today's text, where we find ourselves is we reach the end of the story of the Jerusalem section of Acts. The Spirit came upon the disciples and the good news of Jesus is sweeping over the city, not just in words but in deed. And this posed challenges for the religious authority as well as the newly burgeoning church. In our, new passage, or in our passage today, we are introduced to a new disciple named Stephen. He doesn't get very much airtime within the biblical text, but this is a significant moment. The Jerusalem church, under the direction of the original disciples, ended up picking Stephen and six others at the time to care for Hellenistic widows which were being neglected in the workings of the church. They saw that there was an opportunity for impact and they were not meeting the need that was set before them. So they began to talk amongst themselves, how can we begin to serve them in a way that's meaningful? 
So what does Stephen do? Stephen, he, he steps up as a leader amongst the disciples to serve the poor. And he goes to the temple courts to teach people about the way of Jesus. This is the response of Stephen's life. And it says specifically, if you've noticed, that he was full of God's grace and power. And he was full of the Holy Spirit. This is who Stephen was. And then he goes into the, the temple courts and he begins to preach. And he, this accusation is placed against him that he is dishonoring Moses. He's being a terrorist in their midst. He's harming those who were listening to him. And in response, Stephen gives this, this incredible sermon of good news. As well as this frustrated narrative on how predictable the response of the temple courts were. And he outlines for them and he retells the Old Testament story outlining those stories of Moses, of Joseph, and other prophets. People who were rejected and persecuted by their own. And he says that Israel has been persecuting God's representatives for centuries. No wonder they persecuted and killed Jesus. No wonder they were persecuting and killing those who were representatives of Jesus. So the members of the Sanhedrin got so riled up that it says that they gnashed their teeth. They were really upset about this. And they start to execute him by picking up rocks, rocks and stoning him. And as he is dying, he commits himself to the way of Jesus to suffer because of the sins of others. And he even cries out, Lord, don't hold this sin against them. They murder Stephen and they launch a wave of persecution across the city of Jerusalem, which drives many, if not all, of the Jesus followers out of the city. This is a significant moment for the early church. This is the end of the Jerusalem act. Jesus has said, go to Jerusalem. The spirit will come upon you. They begin to see the movement grow rapidly. They move from that upper room to, to 3,000 to 5,000. And they're having impact. And, and there's incredible things taking place in their midst. And now they're being forced out of the city. The paradoxical effect of this incident, though, is Luke shows us how this causes people to be sent out into Judea into Samaria, and this mostly Jewish Jerusalem community became a multi-ethnic international movement in this moment of persecution. In Acts 8 through 12, in the chapters that follow, you see that the church begins to look a little bit different. And this is the power of the Holy Spirit at work. This is what we're talking about this morning, that we look at the life of Stephen, we look at the workings of the church, and we say to ourselves, I see the Holy Spirit doing incredible things in that time. Why is that not the case in ours? Is not the Holy Spirit the same then as it is now? That the Holy Spirit wants to be in our lives and moving and shaping and empowering our very beings to be spirit-filled in the way that we interact with our everyday existence. To be the people that Stephen was. Bold in his words and his actions. Willing to give all he had for the purpose of the truth that had captured his heart. This is different than what we experience and we say and what we see. 
but the power of the Holy Spirit is the consistent theme throughout his story that is available to us as well. You'll notice that he was full of the Holy Spirit. And though the moment of, of martyrdom gets all of the headlines when it comes to Stephen, the life of power was at work well before that moment. If the moment of martyrdom can teach us anything, it is what this power of the Spirit does within our lives when it inhabits us. In this text, there's five observations I want to make about the power of the Holy Spirit. And this is what we believe. We believe as the church that the Holy Spirit comes upon all who place their faith in Jesus. It is unconditional. It is not a qualification requirement in order for the Holy Spirit to come upon us. That is the gift that is given. That is the promise that is fulfilled from the Father. Uh, we do find in the text, though, that there is a rhythm and that there is a practice of being filled afresh by the Spirit. And I wonder if there is many of us today, including myself, that we might find ourselves a little exhausted and empty. We might find our spiritual lives at a place of stagnation and apathy. And we don't know what it really looks like. And we read texts like this and it feels a million miles away. Even as you listen this morning, I wonder if you might invite the Holy Spirit to say, come Holy Spirit, fill me afresh. The first observation I want us to look at when it comes to being filled with the Holy Spirit and the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives is a fruit of it is that we begin to live like Jesus. N.T. Wright, he wrote a book about the Apostle Paul and he had a whole section in there about the way in which Paul weaves non-explicit quotations and allusions from the Old Testament into his writings. But he's really subtle about it. And he's weaving them into the texture of his argument. That if you didn't already know those quotations or those references, you'd probably miss them. And this isn't actually his, his only argument. This is a whole wave of scholars and, and nerds on Paul who are saying, to really get Paul, you need to know this is how he talks. He talks with Old Testament language without drawing attention to it. You're not supposed to know. So what N.T. Wright actually did is, he, what he did is he structured one whole chapter of his book, the opening paragraphs, the closing paragraphs, all to be modeled around really important stories and transitional episodes from Jane Austen's Pride and Prejudice. He laid breadcrumbs and allusions and phrases all throughout his chapter and his writing as a call out to what literary authors were doing around the time of Paul and what Paul did himself and what we see throughout the biblical story. He was telling us that if this kind of came up in an interview and he was la taking a good laugh at it. He's like, most people haven't recognized it at this point. But if you look carefully, you're going to see that Pride and Prejudice is present throughout my theological book about the Apostle Paul. And he's saying that if you're a good author, you know how to do this. You know how to creatively work and give a nod to your influences. And it's not just... A literary technique is not just a Jewish technique. It's something that is very much present throughout the Bible. And we see it a lot in the book of Acts. And this is what this core value is leading us towards. 
that he's making and he's drawing a deep analogy between the story of Jesus and the story of his disciples. There's a consistent callback within the book of Acts to the stories and the gospels of Jesus. At multiple points in the book of Acts, he tells a story and within the story is the language of Christ. We see that in the trial of Stephen and we see that in the, the stoning of Stephen. That the language of Jesus has become the language of Stephen. That is to say that being filled with the Spirit, the power of the Spirit within him had so become one in his very being that Christ's words were bursting out of him. His very being was reflection of who Jesus was and that the text is showing that and over and over again it doesn't stop at Stephen whenever the disciples of Jesus are filled with the spirit and they're acting for his purposes it's the person of Jesus that is represented it's his actions it's his words it's his power it's his very being coming to life and this is what happens when we become empowered by the spirit we begin to live like Jesus and here's the thing about power. Often when it comes to power, we get infatuated with the idea of the dramatic and the supernatural. Don't get me wrong. When it comes to the Holy Spirit, it is probably the area that we're least comfortable with. This idea of healing and, and, and speaking in tongues and prophecy and these offerings to us that are throughout the New Testament that are supposed to be true for us today, those are real and active. But if you look at the story of Stephen, it just simply notes full of God's grace and God's power. And yeah, he was doing signs and wonders. It was almost just like, yes, if you're full of the Spirit, if you are empowered by the Spirit, signs and wonders follow. But there was so much more to the life of Stephen than signs and wonders. He was the one leading the charge towards the, the care of the Hellenistic widows. This was the generosity of God that was empowering him. He was the one going to spaces and preaching the good news of Jesus in the midst of incredible persecution. This was the power of the Holy Spirit. He was the one that upon the treatment of the Sanhedrin that would say that they would kill him, he responded, Father, forgive them. That is the power of the Holy Spirit. When Jesus' followers are faithfully representing him in their world, their story looks like his. And sometimes it's awesome. And it's, and it's impactful. And it's dramatic. And it's beyond our imaginations. And in other times, it's hard. And it's, and it's cumbersome. And, and it's heavy. Sometimes the poor are fed and people find new families and there's love and there's forgiveness. And at other times, people are kidnapped and put in prison and murdered. Both are taking place in response to the power of the Spirit. Luke is showing us that what the power of the Spirit does within us is beyond what we are able to do ourselves. I think... When we look at the Holy Spirit, we can lose our desire for an actual lifestyle of the Holy Spirit because we're simply longing for the dramatic nature of the Holy Spirit. 
And when we don't see perhaps a healing around us, or we don't see someone prophesying, or we don't see the dramatic, we immediately disengage ourselves from a relationship with the Holy Spirit. But I would say to us here at City Collective, here in this Western culture, more often than not, we need to get our hearts in line with the Holy Spirit so our lives begin to flow out of that place, that forgiveness and kindness and compassion leads us to that place, and the signs and wonders will follow. It is a promise for us that the power of the Holy Spirit falls within his people and flows out in the most dramatic of ways, but we don't want to do the things that require sacrifice of us. What is forgiveness if not saying that I am going to put myself second? To let go of my pride, to let go of my desire for control. This is what the power of the Holy Spirit is doing in inviting us to begin to live like Jesus. Ephesians 4, 22 to 24 says this. To put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of our, your minds and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. The church is called to live as the redemptive presence of Jesus in the world, partnering with God in reconciliation and renewal of all things. It is through the power of the Holy Spirit filling individual followers of Jesus and empowering local communities of faith. That is you and that is me. And Paul would actually insist that we need to be continually filled. The second observation is that the power of the Spirit works through a posture of surrender. Martyr in the Greek, the, the word martyr comes originally from the ancient Greek legal term martyria. Nothing too hard to figure out on that one. But martyria actually means witness, which is defined as for someone to give testimony or evidence in the court of law. Acts 1.8 says you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And what the actual invitation is, is that we would be witnesses. Now the word martyr, we know, means to lay down one's life for, for our faith, for, for a cause greater than ourselves. But you can't die for faith unless you're first living for faith. You can't die for something that you're not living for. The idea is that Jesus expects us to live in such a way that wherever we go, the presence of God enables us to bear witness to the resurrected Christ. The power of the Spirit is the power to be the witness that we are called to be. And Lord knows we need power for that kind of witness. In our schools, in our workplaces, as we're driving on, on the number one and the traffic's awful and we don't feel like a witness to anyone, we need the power of the Spirit actively moving within our lives so that we can bear witness to who Jesus is. And to bear witness to someone else means to submit ourselves to that someone. To operate in the space of, of surrender to that greater authority. When I see that I need power, I begin to live in such a way that I long for it and I search for it and I ask for it. When we look at the posture of Stephen, the, the disciple, 
There is an incredible humility to the way that he chooses to live. He has power of signs and wonders, and yet he offers himself to the purposes of Jesus. It's, it's like the, the Pharisees that were calling out to Jesus on the cross, why don't you call down angels from heaven to save you if you really are the Son of God? This is again living like Jesus. To have a sense of surrender to the cause that is greater than ourselves. To be a martyr is to lose our life for the purposes of something outside of what we are currently doing. And that's the way that we look at it. But in reality, it's bearing witness every day in the truth of the word itself. If we are bearing witness, we are living into that, that spirit that, that Stephen lived into on that day. The third observation is there is a reverence for God. Uh, different cultures have different approaches to this posture of bowing. For some, it's a, for some it's a thank you. For some, it's a greeting. For some, it's, it's a goodbye. For some, it holds a, a sense of respect. For some, in, in different cultures, they, they don't want to bow their head, and so they, they, they dip themselves a little lower because of a sense of fear. There, there's different appreciation and approaches to the sense of bowing. But within an Eastern culture, any sense of reverence would have been an inclination of the head. To put ourselves in a prone position. To offer completely. Like it says in Ephesians 4. For our lives to be a living sacrifice that we offer to God. I cannot live into the power of the Spirit if I don't have any reverence for the one who gives this promised gift. Many of us can be guilty of underestimating the power of the Holy Spirit. And we can be found to underestimate the role of the Holy Spirit when it comes to our prayer lives. I've heard it said that private prayer is revealed in public power. And I believe this to be true as a child of God. Our connection to the Father through the Holy Spirit is only strengthened by prayer. I wonder in the practices of your life, are there practices for intentional intimacy with God? When we hold reverence, when we hold a desire and an understanding that God is, is the King of kings and the Lord of lords, and he's inviting us into the courts of his, of his temple, that he, he resides within us, would we want, not want to commune with him? To develop that relationship, to offer those moments of prayer. Prayer is how we can cultivate a powerful and victorious life as a Christian. And this is not saying that all things will go our way, but when we use the language of flourishing here at City Collective, I want you to picture a life that is flourishing in the fruits of the Spirit coming out. Love and peace. That there is joy and there is self-control. There, there is an overwhelming separation of what it is to be human when you're a follower of Jesus than when you're not. Prayer that is led by the Holy Spirit is prayer that is in partnership with the heart of God. Now there's language in the Bible that talks about the gift of tongues. 1 Corinthians 14, 14 says, For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my understanding is unfruitful. 
And Romans 8, 20, 26 says, In the same way that the Spirit helps us in our weakness, we do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. The Holy Spirit intercedes for us. There's a gift that is given in, and we believe that the gifts of the Spirit are open and they're, they're available to us as followers of Jesus. And we're not looking to, to make that a dramatization of our spirituality. But in fact, I want you to hear the encouragement of the text that when you don't know what to pray, the Spirit gives you the peace and the words and the ability to pray. That is to say, when we have the brokenness of our life encountered with the faithfulness of God, we are met by a Savior that finds us in the midst of our struggle and gives us the language that we cannot find ourselves. Prayer is part of this relationship that we so desperately need to be developing. Ephesians 1.17 says that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give unto you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. So in our prayer, we discover so much more. We discover that it makes us wise and it reveals God to us. And how the spirit helps us to understand the mind of God. And without the Holy Spirit, we cannot understand the things of God and we need spiritual eyes in our hearts in order to see the ways in which God is moving in our lives. And the fourth observation I want to make this morning is that the power of the Holy Spirit holds the potential for incredible beauty in impossible love. I mentioned it, that when this persecution began, when Stephen is stoned to death. This marked the end of the Jerusalem section of the story of Acts and the beginning of the movement of Christ's followers beyond the walls of Jerusalem. That in this moment of incredible hate and evil and brokenness, God used it for good. The language I always want us to be engaging in when we think about the way in which there's brokenness in the world is God doesn't cause bad things to happen to us. God meets us in the midst of it. But in the brokenness of the world, the reality is, is that awful things take place. And the beauty of who God is, is that God uses all things for good. And in this moment of incredible evil, God uses it for good. Persecution ramped up in the city and people were forced out of the walls and out of that the people began to preach in Judea and Samaria from fulfilling the words of Jesus, going to the ends of the earth and we hear story after story of the ways in which people across the, across the world began to actually hear the good news of Jesus and respond in faith. And that wasn't the only beauty in the midst of the brokenness. Because if you notice, it said that they were laying their cloaks at the foot of a man named Saul. In the midst of this atrocity that was taking place, this unfair, unjust moment, stood a man named Saul. In the beginning of chapter 8, it says, Saul approved of their killing him. Acts 8 verse 1. Standing there is Saul approving of the actions being taken. Saul, who would become Paul, 
who would be hit by the Holy Spirit, that would be encountered by the presence of God and become the primary author of the New Testament text that we read today. Incredible beauty in the midst of brokenness. And within that moment and within our own moments, we see how history repeats itself over and over again. We see how power can play out in beautiful ways. The work of the Spirit doing incredible miracles in our world. And we see how persecution plays out. Persecution is at a historic high on a global level. In our bubble of the Western world, we do not see it, we do not experience it. It does not mean that it is not taking place. But God works beauty and brokenness. And we need to be holding the stories of the Spirit doing the impossible and the incredible close to our hearts so that we can even just simply pray, God, would you do that again? Maybe you need to hear the story of someone who's, they had been praying for, they'd been praying for their husband at a church that we grew up at for over 30 years to come to know who Jesus was. And they prayed every single day. They were praying and they were inviting and they were inviting. And then just one Sunday, uh, the husband just said, yes, sure, I'll come. And he came for a few months, a few months, a few months. Didn't say a word about church, didn't say a word about faith, but he came. And then one Sunday when the, when the pastor made the offering to respond and put their trust in Jesus, without looking at his wife, without looking at anyone around him, without any premonition was going to take place. He just put his hand up and said, yeah, that's, that's me. And he came to the front and got prayed for and he gave his life to Jesus. Would you do that again, spirit for us? Or maybe you need to have a story with, with somebody in the room that has, has lived an incredible journey of faith and they've seen the way that the spirit has done the impossible healing, words of encouragement that spoke as prophecy of days to come that they needed to hear. Spirit, would you do that again in our time? Would you do that again in our story? Or maybe the generosity that they've experienced from those around them that has been God's provision laid out before them. Spirit, would you do that again? Would you do that again? That's the power of the Holy Spirit repeating itself in our story. Reconciliation, healing, freedom, generosity, provision. This is what the Spirit does. And the fifth observation that we can see in this text is that the Spirit, the power of the Spirit is an ongoing experience. Being filled with the Spirit is an ongoing experience. And as a church, every time that we gather together, we need to remind ourselves that we need to be filled not with other things, but we need to be filled with the presence of God because that's what empowers us to do the works that he sets before us, to be the witnesses that he asks us to be. The great challenge that I faced in my own spiritual walk and that I feel is consistent throughout much of our Western reality is that there is a lack of hunger and desire and longing for the Spirit to do what we saw in the life of Jesus. We might, we might be theologically charismatic, but we're functionally cessationist. 
That is to say that we might believe that God does the impossible, but we sure as heck do not live like that's the case. Longing is hard. And it's hard to see and it's hard to experience in our everyday where we can get everything and anything right away for ourselves. John Wimber says, in the West we have been conditioned to consume spiritual goods rather than become radical spirit-filled disciples. Consuming becomes the norm. And when I feel like I'm just consuming to sate my appetite in the moment, then hunger is not actually nurtured, it's not grown. We're not actually filling it with the right things. And this has been a normal thing that has been a struggle throughout church history. Paul faced it often when writing to cultures in his, his letters to them, to cities and new churches. Within the Roman Empire, there was things called symposiums, house parties where you would go to a house, there'd be alcohol and food, and the cultural norm was to get drunk and eat as much food as you could, throw up and do more of it in the same event, and that was the norm. Consumption of excess amounts was the norm in which we operated. You just consume like crazy because in your consumption, you're actually worshiping the false gods that you're connecting to deities. And you would do all sorts of things out of that place because of that kind of mindset where you were being intoxicated to impair your inhibitions. And you would do it over and over and over again. This was the norm. And Paul has to tell the church that to become a Christian was to not simply get drunk off the communion wine. We have taken our experiences in our everyday culture and we have normalized it in the way we interact with Jesus. We have said, I do not see the impossible taking place every day around me. Therefore, it is not possible with Jesus. We have made our experience of culture be our norm and our baseline for our faith rather than the promises of the power of the Holy Spirit that is available to us today. We need a reshifting of our foundation. We need a refilling of the Holy Spirit. And we need to begin to ask the question every day, in every space, in every opportunity. Come Holy Spirit, do what only you can do. I want more than what I can see. I want more than what I've had. Not because I'm, I'm greedy and wanting things for the sake of myself. But because I want to live like Jesus. We will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon us to be witnesses. And so many of us are trying to be that witness without the power and presence of the Holy Spirit. Stephen is made famous as a martyr, but his impact was in his life. The Spirit didn't come at the very end in a dramatic moment. It was in his life all along. And I just want to end by saying this, worship team, you can come to the front. The Holy Spirit is like an ocean, and in our comfortable lives of the lower mainland, we are content with our cautious dipping of our toes into the sand. And then we grow frustrated in feeling as if our faith experiences are not authentic. 
No wonder they're not authentic because they're not actually diving into what God is offering to us. God is inviting us to jump in. He wants to baptize us, to fill us, to be surrendered fully to him. I'm going to ask you to stand to your feet. And we're going to do something together as, as a church family. As, as we close our time today, we're going to take a moment. Biggie, you can start playing whenever you're ready. As, as you're standing there, I'm just asking, would you just open your hands if you feel comfortable? The power of the Spirit that did an incredible work through the life of Stephen in his time on the earth and well in the time after is available to us today. And we believe in this church that the Spirit is alive and it's moving and it's ministering to those in a way that's more than a good talk, more than a great worship set, but in a way that God desires to be with us. And even as, as I was sharing, I can sense some of you are, are hungry. Some of you do long for the things that we've talked about. And you've, you've tried everything and you feel frustrated. So Spirit of God, light us aflame. I pray that you would release shame and fear and overwhelm us with your love. With hands extended, we say, come Holy Spirit for a fresh infilling. I wonder if even if in our hands right now we, we might feel almost like a weight of, of shame and fear, of, of disappointment, of frustration that we're carrying. Spirit of God, would you take that? And would you instead fill it with your joyous love that pours out on our, our hearts? To those who ask the Father is a good Father who gives good gifts. So for those in the room who feel like God has put hunger in your hearts, some of you have been crying out for God, would you do within me something new? I need more than what it is that I'm experiencing. Maybe at different times you've experienced the presence of God, and for some of you, it's brand new. But that hunger is there within you. And that signs of God meets us fall. in that place of hunger. To you be the glory. In Jesus' name I pray. Thank you for listening to today's message. We hope it encouraged and blessed you in your walk with our Lord Jesus Christ. To keep up with City Collective, make sure to check us out on Instagram and Facebook at City Collective Church. Have a great week.